Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Brown, a rheumatologist at the Cleveland Clinic, Ohio, in the United States of America. Adam obtained his Bachelor of Science degree in biology from New Mexico State University before completing his medical degree at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, both obviously also in the United States. After his residency in internal medicine at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, he completed a rheumatology fellowship as well as a vasculitis fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic Department of Rheumatic and Immunologic Diseases. It's easy for me to say. And in case there's anyone on the planet who hasn't heard of it, the Cleveland Clinic is one of the preeminent institutions, not only in America, but globally. And he was based, is based at the Cleveland Mothership in Ohio because they have a number of satellite centers. He currently works there as the Associate Program Director for the Rheumatology Fellowship Program. Adam was involved in the team which won an Apex Award for Excellence in Digital Media in 2020 and is no stranger to a podcast hosting Ruminations, that's R-H-E, Ruminations, great title, where he provides updates in the field of autoimmunity as well as historical perspectives and case presentations of medical mysteries. He's the author of the popular book, Rheumatology Made Ridiculously Simple, and he also edits and writes for Room and Boards, and that's R-H-E-U-M, Room and Boards, another great pun. So I think I'm going to enjoy chatting to him, actually. And Room and Board is, is an online educational quiz platform for rheumatology fellows to practice their knowledge in a fun way. And we're going to come on to that. And if that wasn't enough, he's delivered several talks and presentations that we're going to discuss. So, Adam, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm excited about being here. I also want to say it's funny. I like that you clarified that New Mexico is part of the United States because a lot of people in the United States don't know New Mexico is part of the United States. You know, whenever I poke fun at America, and by the way, I also poke fun at Britain because I've lived in both. I'm a citizen of both. It astonishes me how little people sometimes know about their own country. And I've actually traveled to every single state in the union. So I really like New Mexico and people who travel, they always go to Florida and California and New York, and they miss out some really, really great places. So let's get into Adam. What led you to pursue medicine and then into rheumatology when it's apparent you easily could have been a scriptwriter on a comedy show? (laughs) Thanks. That's nice of you to say that. So I, um, I grew up in a house of a lot of biology and science talk. My dad was a veterinarian. My mom was a biology teacher. And so I kind of had an interest in medicine for a young age. My first job was mopping floors at my dad's veterinarian clinic. And I liked the science so much. And my dad always told me that if you like science a lot, go into human medicine because the science is, you know, so much so much more advanced, developing much more rapidly. I That's what I pursued early on. And I uh, I love it. And I love the idea that, you know, you can have a job that is this you're constantly, constantly, constantly learning from. And I think that's what really intrigues me about medicine and intrigues me about um, r- rheumatology in particular. It's, just, it's, it's pretty rapidly growing field, but there's also such massive mysteries that remain that I'm hoping that you know, over my lifetime as well, we're going to learn huge leaps and bounds more and more about these strange conditions and, um, and how to better treat these patients. And I think rheumatology is a great kind of sounding board from that standpoint, because, you know, from not that long ago, 
uh, in rheumatology world, there wasn't a whole lot to do about these patients. And you had these patients with, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile idiopathic arthritis, as we call it now, and younger people that, you know, had debilitating diseases where they had, you know, they were in wheelchairs at a young age and, you know, doing swimming pool therapy and things like that just to kind of relax their joints a bit. And now we have these therapeutics that we almost rarely even see, you know, erosions and, and kind of the debilitating joint disease because of these therapeutics that have totally revolutionized the field. So I think it's just an exciting place to be because there's just so much more to always learn. And I'm sort of like, people get a running high when they run and I don't like to run, but I do, I get like this kind of rush when I learned a really fascinating fact. And I think that medicine's the best place to be when you're, when you're like that, right? There's just so much more to learn and it's just it's a fun field. I couldn't agree with you more. So I'm really interested in people's origin stories because I think you can learn a lot from where they come from. And it strikes me there are two things that lead people into a given specialty. For me, it was the influence of some great people. I was going a very different route. I was going to do clinical pharmacology because there was this charismatic guy, Professor Alistair Bellingham, who I was just intrigued by. But then I met the surgeons at Liverpool University where I studied and boy, they were all larger than life. And I just, I, they were aspirational. And sometimes it's because something's happening, something special is happening. And I know when I was at med school, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, it was all the ulnar deviation and the nodes and heading to a wheelchair and hot wax and steroids. And now you guys have got, I wish you guys would have drugs that I could actually pronounce, but you've got all these incredible <laughs> new drugs. And I know that a lot more is being learned about the specialty and we'll get into that a little bit but I wanted to learn a little bit more about you Adam first of all one of my favorite American authors Mark Twain said travel is fatal to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts boy is that true broad wholesome charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth or one's lifetimes and You've studied abroad multiple times, Adam, in Stockholm, gorgeous place, Spain, the Sunshine Coast in Australia. And as a surgeon, I did a mini sabbatical in far north Queensland many moons ago. I learned about snake bites. I learned about penetrating trauma, the like of which I've never seen, and Lyme disease, which I've never even heard of. What inspired your travel? And give us examples of things you learned from each, just as I learned about Lyme disease rather than vegetating stateside, as Mr. Twain would have it? So I think that, you know, at, at a young age, I was instilled with travel. My parents, you know, raised me in New Mexico, which is a fairly small, unpopulated area. It, I mean, it's re re decently populated, but people kind of think of it as this barren wasteland, but it's not. You know, it's mountainous and it's beautiful and it's very, very cultured. But my parents said they wanted to, they want me to know the world is a big place. So that at a young age, we traveled to the Caribbean, we traveled to Europe at a young age and kind of instilled with me this importance of seeing how the world works and seeing how other cultures are. And that there's more to the world from where you are raised. And I think I you know, took this when I was in, at New Mexico State, where I started my undergraduate. And I went to the um, foreign travel department and I said, oh, what do you what do you offer in terms of travel? And I said, oh, well, if you have a, a scholarship, you can go to any of these places. And I put this huge map down. And they had this a multitude of pins in it where all these different schools were that they had this program where they send someone to them and the, and the school sends someone to us in New Mexico. And and your, if you had a, a scholarship of some sort, it would just pay for it. And I was like, 
wow, how many times do I get to do this? They're like, oh, as many times as you want. And I was like, wait, why isn't everyone doing this? So I, like, so I just took advantage of it and did it four times. Uh, so I, the first place I went, I was, you know, my first time, you know, really being away from home. And I was like, well, where could I go that's not too, too different, I guess. And that would be, you could use English because as an American, I don't speak many languages. And they had, <laughs> and they, uh, they said, oh, the, we have some in Australia. And I was like, well, I want to do science. I said, oh, this school has some good science courses. And they showed me a picture of it. And it had the school where literally there's kangaroos hopping around on campus. And as soon as I saw that picture, I was like, I want to go there. <laughs> so that's how, that's how Australia came about. And I, um, and I also, while I was in Australia, the first thing that comes to my head is just the absolute difficulty of surfing. I nearly killed myself multiple times trying to stand up for the first time. And I, I grew up snowboarding, believe it or not, in New Mexico. We have mountains. Again, I have to emphasize New Mexico mountains. Um, and, you know, so I grew up snowboarding. I'm like, oh, surfing is going to be cake. I, I probably didn't think it was going to be cake, but I thought I'd be able to do it. And man, it was very difficult. And it was just, I remember one time I fell off the board and a wave hit me and the board just flew right by my head underwater. And I was like, I'm going to get killed <laughs> doing this. So, I, so I, 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 whenever I see someone surfing, I just imagine the skill involved in that. And I appreciate it much more having tried and, and failed miserably at it. Um, well, I said, well, I can keep doing this. This is great. And then I was like, let's try something really different. Let's try a different language. Let's try a very different climate. And I was talking to the people at the Foreign Affairs Department, and they showed me Sweden, and they showed me Stockholm. And I was like, oh, my God, it's fantastic. So I went to a very, very different place. I went to Stockholm, and I did some science courses there. And it was just a mesmerizingly beautiful city, but also the, you know, the changes. And I got there in the middle of summer, and then I ended there in January. So it was like in the, in the deepness of the winter. And just seeing what, what the resilience of people is impressive, because we took a trip up to the uh, Lapland you know, in, the, in this uh, northern circle or whatever you call it and it was just incredible this group of people who live there a decent population living there all year round and they're just seeing the the, the beauties of of summer but also the br brutality of winter and the what people can endure and live through is just impressive you know just the sun never coming up really just kind of the rays of the sun lighting the area and and people living through it and we got to like play with husky dogs and just see that it's just a gorgeous place and are totally this is a different part of the just genuinely different part of the world you know and the quality of the medicine there is astonishing i was uh, very fortunate to visit visit the karolinska as a visiting professor many years ago and boy it's impressive and i just sometimes think that people who hold forth on the quality of medicine where they practice go visit the karolinska and then reevaluate. So let's dig into something else. I love medical history. I note that in another podcast you did, you, you delve into the history of rheumatology. And an example you give is the cause of gout and uric acid crystals. Can you explain a bit how you see looking into the past as a valuable tool for, for clinicians? And talk to us about gout. Is the old English caricature of a curmudgeonly colonel with a handlebar moustache drinking port with his bandaged inflamed foot elevated on a couch tell us what you can about gout sure that character of the king's disease right the only people who were getting gout back in the day were people who were very very rich and be able to afford lots of alcohol and lots and lots of food so now we can see that the world's a different place and a whole lot more people have gout we have a lot more access to food and alcohol to answer the first part of your question about the history of, and learning the history I think it's vital to understand the history and understand where we are in medicine. And it gives me a true appreciation of where we are. 
but not only appreciation, it gives me a better understanding of a certain disease, as you know how it was kind of put together over time. There's many, many examples of this. Um, I gave, I go through the history of the tumor necrosis factor inhibitors in my podcast, which kind of gives me an understanding of how that came to be in the decades of work and decades of failure, basically, of use, utilizing TNF for cancer treatment and then blocking TNF for septic shock treatment, and then finally utilizing it in rheumatoid arthritis where it was a home run therapy where it made a huge difference. Um, and it kind of gives me an idea of what TNF does. When you learn that it was actually originally you know, used to thinking that it was, you know, could actually kill cancer cells uh, in the 70s. And, and that's why it's called tumor necrosis factor. And then, you know, as they're, as they're, they're trying to utilize it for um, cancer therapies, so they're infusing people with tumor necrosis factor and the people couldn't tolerate it. And so it, it didn't work because they couldn't get to a satisfying levels of tumor necrosis factor. And the reason they couldn't tolerate it is the patients become hypotensive and tachycardic. And it said, oh, wow, they can't tolerate it because they become hypotensive and tachycardic. That looks a whole lot like septic shock. So they started doing, you know, trials and, well, maybe this, if we block TNF, not give TNF, but if we block tumor necrosis factor, maybe that'll like stop shock. So they did it in these animal models where they give, you know, um, a different types of different mammals pseudomonas infection at the same time they give them a TNF inhibitor. And as long as they're antibiotics as well, it stopped. It literally, the, the animals survived much better than antibiotics alone. And people are like, oh my God, this is a total change. We're going to stop septic shock. And pharmaceutical companies are really excited about this because septic shock is relatively common, right? Um, and so they did these huge trials in the early 90s of blocking TNFs and actually utilized monoclonal antibodies to block TNF instead of give TNF, which they're giving it in the cancer trials. And it totally failed. It just didn't work. And people argued, well, maybe it's because we didn't give it early enough. In the animal trials, obviously, you can like kind of give the TNF inhibitor right when they give the pseudomonas. But in human trials, you don't you know how long the infection has been going on by the time they get to the hospital, right? So they said, well, it didn't work. And these pharmaceutical companies poured, you know, millions and millions of dollars into this drug. And then, but at the same time, the cytokine world was opening up in rheumatology and rheumatoid arthritis. And we're recognizing that TNF seems to be a bit of a master regulator of multiple cytokines, IL-6, IL-1. You can get me started on cytokines. The rheumatologists get really excited about it. But so we recognize that knocking out TNF in vitro showed that it actually decreased IL-6, IL-1. So as these trials were failing in septic shock, these rheumatologists were like, well, what, can we use this drug in rheumatoid arthritis? And the pharmaceutical company was like, oh, I get, yeah, I guess so. You have all these drugs that were made. And it just completely revolutionized the field rapidly. So all of a sudden, you had these diseases that were pretty much debilitating for the majority of patients. And it's opened the door rapidly, and that just started this revolution in rheumatology. But it's just interesting to see how that development happened over decades of recognizing what the cytokine does and how to start manipulating it. And it gives me a better, I think, appreciation of utilizing these drugs now, just knowing where it comes from and how you know, it came from oncology, then it went to ICU and, and uh, intensive care therapy, then it went, finally came to rheumatology. So it's just a neat way to kind of understand the therapies we use and understand kind of the cytokine a little bit better than just kind of Hey, try some of this medication to, to help your joints. Now, the gout story is beautiful. And I think that gout is kind of one of those diseases that it's blown off a lot. Like, oh, you have a big swollen toe or, or a, a joint pain. This is, it's, don't worry, it's just gout. You know, if you have this older patient, high, high uric acid, and they tap the joints full of crystals, they, oh, it's just gout. We'll give you some medication to lower your uric acid, and you'll be better. No big deal. But we don't really appreciate how intensely intensely painful gout is. People say that out of all the diseases in rheumatology, at least, gout by far and away the most painful disease where you have patients who tell me, oh my God, if I, if I had a saw, I would have cut my foot off because the pain was so bad in the foot. 
And I think that we don't give enough credence to the severity of how gout can be. I mean, also say, oh, it's just uric acid, you know, that's what's causing this. But we didn't really, we really didn't know uric acid was driving this disease until 1962. So we knew uric acid was high in patients with gout for over a, a century, but we didn't recognize that gout was actually, the uric acid was actually, crystals were forming in synovial fluid of these patients until 1962 um, with the advent of the microscopes that could see the crystals. That, so it's fairly recent that we got that understanding. But the interesting thing about this from a story standpoint is that even uh, when we had the, when we took fluid out of a patient in 1962, saw crystals, said, aha, we have uric acid. We kind of suspected uric acid was the driver of this disease. Now we know what gout is. People said, well, wait a minute. You have uric acid. Maybe that's just an innocent bystander. Maybe uric acid is produced from the inflammation. We, can't, we didn't really prove that uric acid actually triggers the inflammatory response, that major big swelling of the knee or big swelling of the toe. We, could, we didn't prove that tr- uric acid triggered it, right? So these two uh, rheumatologists, well, one was an attending and one was a, a fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, said, well, we're going to prove that. So they get uric acid in a syringe, and they injected their own knees with it. So they said, okay, so I'm going to do my right knee. So they, the attending injected his right knee, and the fellow injected his right knee. So the left knee was a control. And they said, the, the great part about this study is that they even said that we're going to carry on rounding in the hospital for the rest of the day and see how we do. If we have a flare, we will not intervene. We will not give colchicine. We will not give corticoids because we want to see how it plays out over time and be able to document it well. So after that injection, they got their white coats on to get ready to the hospital. An hour later, they're laying down on the floor of the hospital, screaming in agony because their knees were giant and swollen and incredibly painful. And they were begging for steroids and someone to tap their knee to get the fluid out. So the study completely crumbled immediately. And they also got a taste of how absolutely painful gout can be. So that's how we know that uric acid actually trigger the inflammatory response in gout. Uh, it was because of these people like literally injecting their own knees and then trying to go about their day in the hospital and completely failing at doing that. So that's just kind of a neat historical fact. And that gives me a better appreciation of, oh, it's, you know, it's actually decades of work to get to understand that uric acid triggers these gout flares. And also took a lot of pain from these doctors who I, lo- I love the fact that they wanted to go around about around the rest of the day and like and also like noted that they're not going to intervene on themselves. And within an hour, they're begging for steroids. So I, I love that story. I think that's actually priceless, isn't it? You know, puts it into perspective, physician heal thyself. So tell us a bit more about your online quiz platform that you write, Room and Boards. Yeah, so, you know, in rheumatology, rheumatology is a bit of a different specialist because it's not very big. There's not enough rheumatologists. There's not enough fellowship spots to get to be as many rheumatologists as we need. With that, you know, compared to other specialties like cardiology or pulmonary, there's also a whole lot less resources for the fellows. Um, so, you know, in cardiology, there's a lot of people studying it. So if they develop, you know, a quiz platform or, or a book, there's a lot more people to read it. So in rheumatology, we didn't really have a whole lot of quiz banks. And what I recognized when I was in medical school and when I was in residency with internal medicine, there's a lot of quiz banks. And I really learned well from it. Um, but the thing I wanted to do differently is, A, I wanted to make quiz banks so people could practice and test their knowledge. We also wanted to make it fun. So I think that was the big thing about what I've learned in education 
is just not making it sterile, you know, making it kind of uh, interesting, engaging, and ha- tell some jokes along the way. And I think people, A, like it better. They enjoy doing it better. They don't feel like, oh, God, I, I got to do another two, 10 questions. You know, they, they actually want to engage with it and learn and maybe have a laugh along the way. So I, that's why I tried to, tried to kind of put that into room and boards where they do questions, but along in, in the answer, I make some jokes about how the question was asked. I make jokes about getting the questions wrong. And I think that like, I try and make it engaging and interesting. So that's what I think I, I, my, my thumbprint on this quiz platform is just trying to make it funny and people actually enjoy doing it and making study not such a chore. So I've already said, I, I respect your sense of humor and your, your podcast subtitle is Medical Mysteries and Other Ripping Yarns of the Immune System Gone Awry. It's great. And your textbook, Rheumatology Made Ridiculously Simple making rheumatology less opaque. Talk to us about that and talk to us about using humor in your your educational assets. And I believe you've been awarded Teacher of the Year at the Cleveland Clinic multiple times. I'm not surprised. So talk to us a little bit about the textbook and talk to us a little bit about using unconventional ways to get people's attention. So yeah, so the textbook came about because when I was doing um, internal medicine residency and you know, infectious disease is a really, really important part of internal medicine residency. There was this book called Microbiology Made Ridiculously Simple, and everyone had it in my hospital. And they had, you know, pictures, very, very kind of basic drawings, like line drawings uh, representing a certain disease or certain therapeutic. And I remember like, you know, a decade later, I could like think of those line drawings and how simple they were, but I I remember what they represented. And it was just very, very casually written. And it wasn't like a chore to read by any means. So everyone got it and everyone read it. And people kind of all talked about, you know, infectious disease through the lens of that book at both my medical school and my residency. And when I got into a rheumatology fellowship, I recognized that rheumatology is very, very different. So first of all, in internal medicine, when you do internal medicine, I feel like when you leave internal medicine, you have a pretty good idea about cardiology. You have a pretty good idea about pulmonology and ICU care. And you have a, a decent idea about infectious disease. Not that you could, you know, perform the perform them at a high level, but you knew you knew a lot about the therapeutics that were used. If you saw a patient, you recognized what the disease had, if it was pulmonary or cardiac, an infectious disease. You you knew about the, you know, different organisms. You knew about the different antibiotics. But rheumatology is very different, as most people had no idea what the specialty does. And I think that aligns well even in internal medicine in general. When someone orders an A and A and it's positive, like, oh oh, what do I do with this? <laughs> they don't know what any of these serologies mean. I think that when you go through internal medicine residency, most people don't have a very good background in rheumatology, and often it's not even a required rotation to go through. Um, so one of my big pushes is, you know, in my own history, I was, I just happened upon the rotation in rheumatology, and I, um, I, uh, for example, I, want, I wanted to, do, I wanted to do cardiology when I went into internal medicine. That was what you see that on TV, you see the, um, you know, people rushing in and saving a life. I was like, oh, that's not really exciting. But then, you know, the things lacking for me were, um, you know, they didn't have the puzzle pieces and the diagnostic challenges, in my opinion. Then I wanted to do ICU, and I thought ICU would be exciting and a bit of a rush. So I um, did ICU rotations that well, that wasn't for me, and I just happened to find a rheumatology rotation. And they had these super bizarre cases, and they had, uh, you know, a room. I felt the rheumatologist there was just like a genuine, like, Sherlockian doctor that I was kind of dreamed of being, you know, where this person was coming in and saying, huh, there's these, uh, there's, you know, the brain involved, the, the lungs involved, you know, what are the characteristics of the, of the histology? 
and they had all the systems involved that they were that they were studying, and they knew about the lungs, they knew about the brain, they knew about the kidney, and how different diseases can affect each one. And then, even more impressively, you had like these these patients who were like on death's door with their lungs full of blood from small vessel vasculitis and going on to dialysis, and they were totally healthy a few weeks before, and then the rheumatologist came in made the diagnosis, hit, hit them with high doses of corticoids, and these patients like were seen in an outpatient two weeks later looking normal. And this is like shocking to me how well these, how fast these patients turned around once the diagnosis was made. So that really kind of sold me on this, on rheumatology and how fascinating it could be, and then recognizing these therapeutics that were just so bizarre to me at the time, and then they could just completely transform someone's life. Was very very you know satisfying uh, from a, a physician standpoint, and the, obviously and the patient standpoint. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, you know what? I think people really need to get see rheumatology earlier on. So one of my quests has been to try and you know get people to understand rheumatology and not being so opaque, at, especially at the uh, training level. So I reached out to the uh, med masters who made microbiology made a simple and said, hey, look, you don't have a rheumatology book. I would love to write one. Uh, with you guys. And um, and I have illustrations in mind that I think would be helpful to kind of uh, show what I'm thinking. And so they said, yeah, let's do it. So I, I wrote the book over a couple of years. And I, I think my goal has been that, you know, a trainee can read it and have an idea of what rheumatology is. But I think in doing so, it's important to recognize what we don't know. And I think that's, I think one of the big barriers to rheumatology is this is such a strange disease. And I think people think that, oh, these rheumatologists understand, you know, why this is happening and it kind of makes them feel kind of intimidated by this specialty. But I think I tell early on, like, we don't know why these diseases happen. You know, that's like, it's such a a complete mystery, not a complete mystery, but a pretty large mystery of what triggers these diseases. And I think rheumatologists are good at pattern recognition. We recognize, you know, oh, the metacarpal phalangeal joints in the hand are involved in rheumatoid arthritis. Whereas the distal interphalangeal joints is involved in psoriatic arthritis, we kind of recognize these patterns happening, but we have no idea why. We don't know why rheumatoid arthritis affects these joints, where psoriatic arthritis affects the other joints. So I think saying that up front kind of relaxes the learner. Like, oh, okay, I'm not missing some major thing. I'm not being stupid by not knowing that. We just don't know the answer. We don't know why these diseases cause certain patterns of injury, but we recognize that the disease causes that certain pattern. So when you see this pattern, think of XYZ disease. So I, I kind of break it down from that standpoint. I think rheumatologists are very good at pattern recognition, but also, you know, making it light, uh, making it casual when the reader is reading it. Um, and also being very upfront about what we do and what we don't know. I think that, that kind of breaks down some barriers with understanding or at least appreciating and feeling more comfortable with this specialty, which I think will, should attract more and more people over time. I think it's well recognized if you go to a talk and someone uses humor, they'll hold their audience. And I certainly, the, the lecturers I remember with fondness and the speakers I remember with fondness of those who use humor, so good on you. So you gave a presentation of, that was called The Societal Impacts of Plagues and Pandemics Throughout History. It's a bit of a light-hearted title, uh, to, to a strange segue. Uh, and this, this was at the American College of Rheumatology meeting. Can you give us a, a brief praise of that, that title? It came about because... I was very honored that the American College of Rheumatology reached out to me and said, hey, we have this, you know, once a year conference. It's, it, that's the big, big conference of, of rheumatology. And would you be interested in talking about uh, COVID-19 and its impact on rheumatology? 
And I was like, like, well, A, I'm really happy that you asked me to talk, but I'm not an expert on COVID-19. And a whole, whole lot more people know a whole, whole lot more about COVID-19. And they said, well, we like ruminations. We like your historical perspective. Is there anything else you'd want to talk about? And I was like, hey, how about the history of how plagues and pandemics have kind of have shaped society? And they said, oh, that sounds great. So that's kind of how it came about. And so I started digging into like, you know, uh, the plague, the, you know, Yersinia pestis infection and how it kind of transformed society and how it kind of, you can kind of see that with COVID-19 in certain aspects. And then I talked about in 1918 influenza and how um, in particular, I looked at the influenza vaccine development um, and how it kind of actually led to the polio vaccine, which is interesting. So my point of that standpoint was, hey, look, just because we're learning a whole lot about COVID-19, which is really important, but how, what, what kind of byproducts are there going to be when you, as we're, all the scientists is pouring into uh, understanding this infection and its impact, kind of global impact on the body, maybe we're going to learn a whole lot more. And I think we're seeing that today with, you know, the understanding, hopefully understanding long COVID better, and maybe that'll kind of end up teaching us more about, you know, uh, severe fatigue that can happen from a multitude of different conditions, um, as well as cognitive dysfunction, dysautonomia that we don't understand very well. So hopefully there's kind of byproducts of what we learn while we're trying to study COVID-19. So one of the other things I kind of jump into when I'm talking about the Black Death in particular in that talk is how what we've learned about what the Black Death did from an evolution standpoint and from a natural selection standpoint and how that probably relates to uh, risk developing risk of autoimmune disease back to rheumatology, right? So the one big question in rheumatology is, you know, why do these diseases happen? And the answer is we still don't really know. We have an idea there's probably a genetic component, there's probably an environmental component, um, and the, the two coming together clash and you develop a certain disease. <clears throat> so it's still very much incompletely understood. But we learned a lot about what happened uh, during the Black Death by studying you know, bones from before the Black Death, bones from people who died during the Black Death, and bones of people who died hundreds of years after the Black Death. And I looked at uh, one study in particular looked at kind of allele frequency changes, you know, the, the genetic variations that happen over time that can be somewhat predicted over hundreds of years with certain genes and how much change there could be when they studied these bones before, during, and after the Black Death. And they did these big studies looking at, well, what genes have changed hundreds of years after the Black Death more so than what we would expect with just natural variants over time in these genes. And a few popped out pretty substantially. One was called ERAP1 and ERAP2. And ERAP1 and ERAP2 are um, involved with the immune system. In particular, they're involved with kind of where you, the immune ability to kind of chop up a, a virus or bacteria and in the cell and then present those pieces of the bacteria to the outside of the cell so your immune system can recognize the bacteria or, or virus. So we think that that genetic variation allowed the cell to chop up the Yersinia pestis to cause the Black Death a little bit more and allow it to um, show off those pieces to your immune system so it kind of developed a more robust immune response to the bacteria. What happened was, though, so that allowed them to have a more robust immune response to Yersinia pestis, but it turns out ERAP1 and ERAP2 are highly associated with the development of inflammatory bowel disease, and they're highly associated with the development of psoriatic arthritis. So one of the ideas here is that that selection occurred. Those people who had that mutation that allowed them to have a better response to fight off your pestis probably also led to a more robust immune response to yourself. Um, so if they lived long enough, that these patients could have then developed a higher risk for developing certain autoimmune conditions. So that we think that kind of opens the door showing there's probably some historical 
you know, reason that patients have maybe a more uh, robust immune response, probably in the wrong way. And it may have been, you know, a response to certain infectious organisms. A more clear example of this is in familial Mediterranean fever. So familial Mediterranean fever is one of the most common auto-inflammatory diseases. The auto-inflammatory is different than autoimmune. So autoimmune usually in denotes both humoral and innate immune response. So humoral being like B cells and T cells, you know, making long-lived immunity, like your response to a vaccine, for example. The innate immune response is the neutrophils and macrophages that run to an acute cut in your skin. The neutrophils and macrophages are there within an hours of uh, to fight off whatever bacteria were introduced through the cut. Typically, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and lupus are considered autoimmune conditions involving both innate and humoral immunity. Autoinflammatory is a whole a different category of disease where it's just your innate immune response doing this. Those those neutrophils that have this rapid accumulation to a certain um, stimulus, like a cut, for example, rapid amount of neutrophils go up and then they come crashing down when the bacteria has been killed off. So it's an, a pure innate immune response. So in certain diseases, there's a, a malfunctioning of that, and the malfunction occurs in something called the inflammasome. And the inflammasome is the structure within a cell that actually is kind of the driver of the innate immune response in certain situations. And that anomaly in that inflammasome is actually what drives autoimmunity in the picture of one called familiar Mediterranean fever, where people have episodic fevers lasting for three days with, uh, you know, serositis and pleuritis, where they have, they have chest pain, they have uh, stomach pain, it can be really severe. People can be absolutely miserable for days, and it can actually lead, lead to an early death if untreated. So there's these conditions. The weird thing about familial Mediterranean fever in particular is that in certain populations, people of our Armenian ancestry, our, our Jewish heritage, kind of a 10% carrier frequency. So 10% meaning that they have one of the genes that can cause the disease, whether or not it's actually causing symptoms or not. But they may not all be symptomatic. So 10% of people have at least one of the genes for familial Mediterranean fever in those populations. So 10%. So in contrast, in the West, in the United States, for example, the most common like, genetic uh, disease that is cystic fibrosis. And the carrier frequency for cystic fibrosis in that population is 4%. So what is driving that high carrier frequency of familial Mediterranean fever in those populations? Well, it turns out the inflammasome that I mentioned before, that little structure inside the cells that drives the innate immune response, the inflammasome is the major target of your pestis. So your pestis kills you by turning off your inflammasome. So it stops your innate immune response from attacking it. So that's a very high mortality rate, and it does this very effectively by turning off the inflammasome. So they recognize in patients with familiar Mediterranean fever or any of them, even if you're a carrier, you're not actually symptomatic, the structure of their inflammasome is slightly different, and their pestis can't bind to it and can't turn it off. So those people have a much more robust response to your pestis. They even demonstrated this in mouse models where they actually had these mouse with the, the mutation and they gave them your pestis and it, they didn't die. But if they didn't have the mutation, all the mice died. So this is clearly showing that you know, both autoimmunity and autoinflammatory probably have some history in, in, in our infectious past. I mean, just because we, you know, humans have been battling infection for millennia. And that's probably changed our genes in ways we don't fully understand. It's fascinating. So I want to change topic a little bit as we head towards the top of the podcast. 
You gave a talk about Whipple's disease. All surgeons like me know about the procedure for pancreatic cancer, which was named for Alan Oldfather Whipple. This was named for George Hoyt Whipple, no relative, although I believe they both knew each other. Give us just a brief, you know, like an elevator consult uh, about this fascinating disease. Yeah, so Whipple's disease is a really strange disease. It's an infectious organism that causes joint pain. And um, it's always on the, well, it's on the differential of in, in rheumatoid arthritis, for example, coming in with metacarpophalangeal joint pain. Uh, but it's extremely rare. I've only seen one case in my life. And it's just a very strange disease. It, it's a bacteria that kind of lives in the intestines. And it can be there for decades. And uh, it often presents initially with joint pain for reasons we don't fully understand. So the patient kind of aches and pains. It sounds a lot like wear and tear arthritis, like osteoarthritis. Um, the issue is they're like in their 40s or 50s. They're a little younger than we think. And the also thing about osteoarthritis, back to that pattern recognition, osteoarthritis tends to like the tip of the fingers and the middle of the finger. So the distal phalangeal joint and the distal interphalangeal joint and the proximal interphalangeal joint, not the metacarpal phalangeal joint. But these patients will often have metacarpal phalangeal joint pain. Um, and then, you know, they get treated with anti-inflammatories and they don't really seem to get better. But then the diagnosis is typically made, you know, 10 years later. And that's when they start developing GI symptoms where they start having diarrhea. They develop anorexia, so start losing weight. And then they finally get a biopsy and the biopsy shows there's tons and tons of this small little bacteria harboring in their, in their duodenum in particular is where it likes to live. Um, so you, you, die, you can do um, uh, serum testing for it, but the best study for it is doing a duodenal biopsy to prove it. So I always wondered, like, how did someone figure this out? Like, it's such a hard diagnosis to make now, right? Let alone a, a, a diagnosis that was made in, you know, in the 1920s. And so I wanted to kind of go through that history and figure out, like, who, like, put these puzzle pieces together? And there's a pathologist named Dr. Whipple who was seeing this patient who um, was... Uh, traveling the world, and they're actually it was partly in New Mexico, and they were in a lot of uh, high tuberculosis areas. And so everyone kind of said, oh, this patient probably has tuberculosis, um, and the patient was hospitalized, and they had a lot of joint pain for years and years, hospitalized, and died. And people kind of chalked it up to tuberculosis. Um, but this pathologist, Dr. Whipple, was like, well, this doesn't really make sense. Their chest actually is totally normal. I didn't really have any uh, pulmonary symptoms we would typically think about with tuberculosis. So he actually does autopsy on this patient. It's like a 25-page case report. It's unbelievably huge. It would ne never happened today. Um, and so it's this huge, massive case report where he just goes through every single finding of, uh, of this patient's very strange intestinal uh, problems. But he went through like his heart, the brain, and found all these strange things in the heart, all these strange things in the intestines, um, all these strange things in the joints. And he kind of put this together that something else is going on, he, although he didn't know what it was. Um, but he kind of alluded that maybe it's infectious because of the way the, the villi looked in the intestines. And, but it wasn't proven as infectious until decades later. But it was just kind of this fascinating history of how someone kind of said, well, something's not right here. And they, he could have easily said, oh, yeah, this patient was traveling in tuberculosis, uh, Latin areas, probably died of tuberculosis. But he really kind of just dug his heels down and described this disease, even though he didn't know what it was. He described it well, and it bears his name today. So it's, it's kind of just a, it's one of those diseases that I always have in my differential, but I've only seen once, or I've missed it a whole lot. <laughs> one, of, one, of those, one of those two. But it's a rare condition. And whenever I see like a rare condition, I'm a, and a cell that is like, oh, described in 1920. I'm like, how does someone describe this in 1920 before we had all the tools? So it's just, it's just kind of an interesting story. So you said 
earlier in the podcast that one of the things you loved was the the opportunity to continuously learn. Well, thank you because I'd never even heard of Whipple's disease. So <laughs> thank you for thank you for the education. Well, when nearing the end, just one final question for you: If you had three wishes that maybe a magical genie could grant you to advance the care of patients in your specialty, what might they be? Three wishes. All right. Well, I think an obvious one would just be more funding, right? So we have so many people writing really interesting grants to try and learn different things, and everyone's kind of fighting for different grants. I think, uh, you know, unlimited funding could just absolutely open up the doors. If it was done by a genie, I'd probably ask for a couple, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to try and sort that out and let all the scientists figure out all these very strange diseases. But a more practical answer, I think, would be um, I think one of the best things we could do for patients is train better doctors. And I think that uh, one of the issues that we face in the United States is high, uh, probably globally really, is this you know, high burnout. And I think that uh, people are having less and less time to do the things they love. And there's a lot of bureaucracy in medicine. And I think that's limiting education and you know, allowing you know, doctors to spend time at the bedside with, with trainees and say, hey, look, look at these findings, look at this, and allow these trainees to really kind of understand these disease processes and work up with these patients because, you know, there's just so much time being spent on prior authorizations and, um, and just a massive amount of paperwork involved in medicine these days. So I think uh, getting rid of all that would be great. <laughs> And I'll be, I'll, I'm sure I can figure out how to do that, but it's just, it's just, it, I think it's a massive problem and it's not really getting better. And then we're seeing the burnout rates get worse and worse over time, especially during COVID-19, but it's becoming a bit of a breaking point. I think that's harming our, our trainees uh, who are trying to learn here while, while doctors are kind of flooded with more and more bureaucratic work to do. I think that would be a great wave of the wand to get rid of all the paperwork and prior authorizations that we have to do. Um, and then... I think a third one would be, I think, following in the footsteps of oncology is more personalized medicine um, in rheumatology. And I think that it's probably going to be the future. I hope it's the future anyway. Right now, we kind of paint these wide swaths with certain therapeutics that can make a huge impact on these patients, but we still can't predict who will respond to which drugs. And I think it'd be very, very nice to be able to do that so we don't have to waste time with trials of medications. For the most part, our drugs work for most patients, but there's, you know, certain subsets, you know, 30% of patients don't respond to a TNF, for example, or those respond the way we'd want to anyway, a TNF inhibitor, I mean. Um, so it'd be nice to predict who are those 30% before we waste time on giving them the TNF inhibitor and just move on to another drug. So I think that to be able to personalize and be able to kind of predict response, treatment response would be fantastic in rheumatology, but then the, the greater wave of the wand would be reversing the immune system so it's no longer having an autoimmune response, right? So like curing the disease. So in rheumatology, we can treat the disease, like almost like patients with type 1 diabetes where they have to be on, you know, insulin replacement for the rest of their life. So most of our diseases we can't cure. So meaning we can make, most of the time, make these patients have like, you know, normal lives where they're, you know, not even thinking about their disease, hopefully. That'd be the goal. But the issue is they still have to go home and, you know, every other week or every month give themselves an injection or go to the rheumatology office and get an infusion or at least take a pill. So it'd be nice to be able to not do that at all, right? Just be able to, hey, here's the diagnosis. Here's how we can reverse engineer your immune system so it's no longer having this response to itself. And that's it. And you're cured. Well, I noticed that what you've asked for, your, <laughs> your wish is, Pretty damn easy to, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get that done. Just for the benefit of, uh, of our European audiences who may not be familiar with the term, prior authorization or prior auth 
is basically in America because of the way healthcare is set up, you have to get the approval of the payor before you do something. So you may have a patient who needs a procedure or a drug and you have to go through a mountain of paperwork to get it approved. And, you know, I practiced in America and I hated that. I hated that. That is one, one advantage to a centralized healthcare system. I hate the term socialized care, frankly, because, you know, we still pay for it, but we pay for it not at the point of care which means those barriers don't exist, which is, which is a good thing. So I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. I could listen to you all day. Um, thank you for joining us, Dr. Adam Brown, for sharing your expertise, everything you're doing for patients, for the specialty, and frankly, the fun way in which you do it. And the passion that you have for your subject is so apparent. So it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. It's been absolutely, I've had a great time. Thank you so much for thinking to invite me. I really appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun. Well, you, I think you've helped a lot of people. And like I say, I, I shall go to bed less dumb tonight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, folks, if you want to learn more about our guest, please check out the show notes with links to his podcast, online quiz, curbside consults, which I didn't get around to talking about, so we'll have to have him back, and other information. I watched and listened to a bunch, and Adam is a font of knowledge. And please, folks, subscribe to the EMJ podcast so you never miss an episode. And be sure to check out the archives for other insightful episodes. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>